0: what's going on ladies and gentlemen hope you're having an awesome morning so far we have an electric conversation today we got deep with dr karen anderson abrell she's a psychologist she's a musician she's an author she is an all-around go-getter and she is crushing it um we got a lot into her background how she started in psychology Uh, she worked with kids in therapy and she shares some really um deep, intense stories about some of these kids and and what some people are really going through that not all of us see. So on the show, we always refer to everyone's got a story and we don't always know what it is. And and when you hear some of the things that she shares, you really get a grasp on that. Uh, But then that kind of led into how she started teaching therapy uh, to others. And then we talked about her love and life podcast. So she's big on you know relationships making sure that you're sound as an individual uh you're happy uh, no one else has that responsibility and so she also shared personal stories um about breaking off you know one an engagement and then uh her current husband now and how beautiful that has transitioned into and you know a lot of people might feel stuck or i'm this age and i should be married by this time i should have kids by this time and i'm not uh, so we talk on everyone having their own timeline, and that was uh, a good heavy hitter for a lot of people to hear, I think, as well. And Tim, what did you think about the interview with, with Doc here?
1: Yeah, I thought it was a great conversation. We covered a lot of different things about uh, self-awareness, uh, like there's a lot of me- like mental health tie into this. I think just the, the greatest, I mean, the coolest thing we talked about was just within relationships, knowing like the difference between loving someone and actually being in love um, and really asking the necessary questions within um, your relationship and she she provided great examples of very tough times that she went through in her life with relationships and how she was able to use those to learn and eventually have a great relationship that she knows she's gonna have for life so Mm -hmm. she she shared a lot of cool things about that and just a very very well-rounded person with a lot of cool stories to share and I know I mean, we're going to put the show into this, but there's a lot of different things of what, whatever you're interested about, you can skip to it. Like, there's just so many cool things with this interview for you guys to get from. So I thought it was, I thought it was a great interview. Yeah,
0: 100%. I think the whole thing just has a lot of good, good personal uh, value and information, a lot of uh, relatable situations too. And, and that's the goal. You know, we want to relate and help people get unstuck with whatever that is. And uh, Karen was really able to help shine uh, some light on some of these things. And so uh, ride with us the whole thing. I know if you see certain things in the show notes, but I'm going to challenge people to really uh, go the distance with this because it is really good stuff. So without further ado, here we are with Dr. Karen Abril. So when did you start your podcast?
2: Um let's see. This will be I'm wrapping up three years. So 2016. No, 2017, 2018. Yeah.
0: Yep. Three oh, wow. years. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And how many a week are you putting out? Or is it well, a yeah. bi-weekly or
2: I was ever I was twice a month. And now this last couple of months, we've been cranking out once a week just because my producer thought it would be helpful that people okay. kind of expect it. But that's challenging because I'm not trying to just crank out something that's not valuable. So, right.
0: Right. And you, yeah. you got a lot going on too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you do a lot. Uh, can you kind of start uh, where it all started for you? Kind of uh, introductory for our listeners and things, what you're into and how we got to where we are now.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's just such a great question because I host a podcast and I am a musician and I'm a psychologist, and this is nothing that I ever thought I would be doing <laughs> at the beginning of my career. First of all, because there was no such thing as a podcast, so let's start there, right? Yeah. So because of technology and the changes, I've evolved and grown with those changes because I started out thinking I would be a therapist. I wanted to, when I was little, I don't know why, I'd be like, I think I want to help people with their problems. I don't even know. I never went to therapy. I didn't know anyone who went to therapy, but I, that was my thought, and then I stuck with it, and uh, so I got a master's in clinical psych, which is how you train to be a therapist, and then I was uh, a therapist in the south side of Chicago working with kids in child welfare, which is obviously a really painful population to work in because these kids are coming from the worst kind of case scenarios that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And at 24 years old, I thought I was going to go save the world, don't you know? (laughs) (laughs) And then I realized that I was having a really hard time because so many of my kids, yeah, they came to see me and meet for an hour a week. And that was nice and helpful. But I wasn't making the kind of – having the kind of impact I'd hoped. I was probably a little grandiose in my expectations. And uh, so that was, that was the, the first kind of reality check for you can have great intentions, but life is hard, and, and there are situations that are really rough. Um, after that, I did that for about three years, and then I went back to get my doctorate in uh, developmental psychology. And then, oh, I did a year of inner city work out in uh, West Philadelphia, too, right before. It was like a year of like volunteer work where I lived in the community, volunteered at, at the local YMCA and at a church, and then lived in community, actual community with other volunteers. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then went and got the developmental uh, psych degree and was a professor, again, in the inner city again, five years at Chicago State University, which is in the South Side, and then five years yeah. at Concordia University. There's a bunch of Concordias. This one was the uh, River Forest, Illinois, which is just the first okay. suburb west of Chicago. And like uh, was
0: Oak, Oak Park River Forest? Yep. You got it. Yeah. So, uh, I went to Mount Carmel on the south side for high school.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Because so you're, you're, you're going, yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. Because you guys are down in Indianapolis? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, but you have some Chicago roots. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. So that got me to be a professor. And my second gig as a professor, I was then teaching people who want to become counselors. So it kind of came full circle. I started as a therapist myself and then eventually ended up teaching others who wanted to be therapists. And about that time, I got married and I was still teaching, but then I moved outside of the city proper and the commute got really long. And I'd written this book and my husband said, you know, to really make this book happen, you probably need to devote some intentional effort because the marketing piece is, as you guys know, it's all social media now. Mm -hmm. And so he thought, And he said, you know, if the commute's too much, and you think you want to step away from academia for a bit to really give this book thing your all, go ahead and do that. And I said, okay, let's do it. And then I became like a millennial on the gram. (laughs) I'm on that phone more than any 27 year old, I promise you. So yeah, so that's how I got there too. And, And really then starting the podcast initially was, I didn't want to do it. I'll be honest with you guys. I, I thought, everyone's got a podcast, right? Everyone thinks they have something to say and it just seems generic at this point. And I enjoyed being a guest on other people's shows. So I love mm-hmm. doing this kind of thing. Yeah. I forgot to share my heart, my passion. And, but I thought, I don't know that it's, it makes sense for me to have my own show. And the woman I was working with at the time, uh, she produced for SiriusXM and had some big name clients. And she said, no, because you know what? Every voice is different. So what you're passionate about is really going to, you're going to find your audience that really needs what you have to hear. And some people, you have your passionate about your book and your message. Some people aren't readers. So you're not going to, they'll maybe skim it. But you, if you really want to get to these, these topics that you really light you up and you know can really make a difference in people's lives, you need to think about a podcast. And then mm-hmm. I did it. And three years later,
1: I love it. That's awesome. What, Sorry. What, yeah, what I went moves?
2: on and on and on.
1: No, you're good. What <laughs> <is laughs> about you? <laughs> well, so what? What is your podcast about? What do? You, what value are you trying to bring with the podcast? What type of people do you bring on? Because it sounds like, I mean, at first you weren't having the impact you wanted in your first first job, and what kind of impact are you having now? You think through the podcast? Yeah.
2: Well, you know, the nice thing about social media again is that you do get to hear that in real time feedback. And I'm sure you guys Mm -hmm. get it too. You crank out a podcast and someone listens and someone's in your DM saying, wow, that was really what I needed to hear today. Or I'm so glad I found you through a friend. So it's very gratifying to know that those episodes are making a difference. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for me, so the theme of my podcast is my my mission statement is lively conversations grounded in psych research to help us all thrive in love and
1: life. Mm.
2: So, okay. the, yeah, thanks. It's, it's really, I mean, love and life, I kept it nice and broad because I wanted to, I didn't want to box myself in in any way. I wanted to be able to talk about whatever seemed to be something I felt was relevant and important and meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, my book is about how to stay happy, hopeful, and positive in the midst of the single dating jungle that's out there. So I did want to, of course, focus on a lot of love and dating and relationship stuff. So I do that. But I bring in people who I know have the research, the experts in their field that I, that I hope that I fear their voice isn't being heard enough, mm-hmm. because there's all the other messages out there, and if it 's an area of expertise that is not mine, which are many, many areas of expertise, obviously, then I want to bring in the source who really knows their stuff on that particular issue. Mm-hmm.
0: And have you had any trouble accessing those, those higher-up people, those true experts? Uh, and if so, how have you kind of navigated those waters with that? Because it's, it's hard to reach every yeah. person we want to reach. So how have you kind of strategized doing that?
2: Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is the people who, the rock stars of my world would be people that most people have not heard their name. They're not, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I'm not going for the Kardashians. No offense.
3: I I mean, that's not,
2: it's not my thing. (laughs) So the people I'm looking for, I've, I've strangely been able to get people to come on my show who I never thought. Hmm. One in particular was Dr. Alan Francis. So he's a psychiatrist. You know, I'm a psychologist. And just for listeners who, because that's very easy to get confused, psychiatrists are the medical doctors and they have MDs. And so psychologists have PhDs. And so the medical doctors are obviously typically, and the psychiatrists have typically been more, you're going to write a script, right? So you, mm-hmm. you're depressed, you're, your psychologist is going to talk it out with you using therapeutic interventions that are based in talk therapy. And your psychiatrist might write that script for a medication. Well, this gentleman, Dr. Alan Francis, he, is, he was on the steering committee for the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So that's, the, that's basically like the book, like you're feeling something and you go to someone, a professional, and they go, okay, let me look in the book and see what you have. Essentially, that's what yeah. that is. Okay. And he was on the steering committee for the four, which he was in charge. And then the five came out and he was so dismayed. He is so concerned that we are now at the point where we're medicalizing every little emotion you have. So if you're sad because your grandmother passed away, there are people who'd go, oh yeah, you have clinical depression. Well, no, you don't. It's called normal. (laughs) (laughs) Your grandma died. You're supposed to feel sad. We're in this era where that is becoming a very rare occurrence where people will actually recognize that there are vicissitudes, there are ups and downs of emotions, and that is part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. So he started being in charge of this book, and then the, fifth, the Five came out, and he literally came out of retirement because he was so concerned that we have, at this point in our profession, chosen to medicalize, like I said, diagnostic inflation. Every little boy who's fidgety in his second grade class because he's bored is ADHD. No, he's right. not. He's a little boy. <laughs> he's fidgety. I have two older brothers. They don't sit still like girls, and yet we expect them to, and so on and on and on. So anyway, I was so taken by his work. I read his book. I was just was hoping so badly to get him on because I really feel that voice is necessary in an age where you turn on, on the TV and there's commercials about, oh, you need, you've need you got shaky legs. You better take a pill for this. You've got to take a pill for that. And I, I just it was a long shot. So in my world, he's a rock star, and I just thought, there's no way. Well, he happened to be promoting another book and he was willing to talk about the book I wanted to talk about and then the other book. And Mm -hmm. so I I guess to answer your question, to navigate those waters, I would just say never, never uh, think that someone won't. You you just never know. They may have – because I don't know how it works nowadays, but I have a hunch that publicists are telling folks when they promote a book, get to the podcasters as well. Because a lot of us have a fan base that's more loyal than, say, the Today Show because Mm -hmm. they really know us. And so they trust us. And so I'm pretty sure that we can get to people who were really excited about what they have to share and probably more often than we think we could. It's
1: hmm. mm-hmm. a good point. A lot more personal with the podcast. Mm-hmm. And if you find, find something in common with someone. Or so, because like with you, you found the books. And how we found you is, I mean, we, we put hashtags on our posts about what we talk about. And I can't remember which one, what I like to do is just go through the hashtags and search for people on the feed for that hashtag. And that's how I came across your profile, like searching about what what we love to talk about and what you love to talk about. So I think that's a big thing too, is just finding commonality, Mm -hmm. which is- Yeah, just
2: find that common ground. And you guys cover a wide array though. I mean, mm-hmm. you
0: guys, <laughs> you
2: covered We're, it all.
1: We're like you. We didn't want to box it in. Right? Well, clearly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so but that's we, great because then whatever is exciting you in the moment or you think is something that would be really beneficial to your listeners.
0: Mm-hmm. You yeah. Like we,
2: yeah, you're not boxed in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we interviewed a, a sales trainer who did two years of gestalt therapy too. Oh. So he goes and finds out like what happened at five, age six, to make that CEO think why he or she is thinking that way. And he was so enamored by our our little tagline, naturally curious. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of how, how we do it from business to health and fitness to, you know, whatever Google maps adding, Oh, the cop alert, like ways, you know, anything like that. It's Mm -hmm. let's talk about it. uh, What's really happening. So yeah, that's why we like to just, it's off the dome. So we we cover a lot. Yeah. So anything we're we're interested in or think people want to hear is what we go after. Um, but I'm curious, I want to go back to when you started teaching, uh, therapists, Mm -hmm. you mentioned how you were 24, you were going to change the world and you (laughs) realized that was a lot harder to do. (laughs) And, and going into therapy didn't mean you were going to be able to fix everyone. Uh, did you incorporate that into your teaching of like, Hey, if if you're feeling this, let me tell you how it's probably going to go. So did you kind of give them that rundown?
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. We and we talk a lot about it in your therapeutic training. You talk a lot about self-care and secondary trauma and compassion fatigue because you're hearing these stories and they're, you know, people aren't coming to therapy because they've had a great week. You know, they're coming cuz they're down. So your job is to listen to story after story of of heartbreak and hurt and pain and and so therapists have to have to really be careful about that. Uh when I was, like I said, at the beginning part of my career when I was working with the kids in child welfare and I was living um in Chicago with my best friend from high school. We went to different colleges and then came back and lived with each other as roommates for a couple of years in our twenties. And I remember one time I came home from work and she's like looking at me and she's like, Wait, you're the therapist, right? And the kids are depressed. But now you're depressed. <laughs> like, so who's helping who? Because this isn't work. and I thought, you know what? She is so right. And here she was, and she wasn't in counseling or therapy or psychology at all, but she could see that I was taking on so much of it. So it's something we talk a lot about, but most therapists struggle with because they do have that empathy and they do have that heart to help and finding that way You have to leave it at the office. Now, most people say that about their job, right? And Mm -hmm. that's harder and harder to do in this day and age where we're all tethered to our phones and we can be accessed 24-7. But for therapists in particular, they almost feel like a bad person if they just heard this really horrific story about someone's childhood and then I'll just leave it at the office. That's my job. But it really is your job. And you really have to because if you then let it infiltrate your life and you become depressed yourself, now you're no good for anybody.
1: Right. Mm Because, yeah, you're literally – when you're listening to them, you're stepping inside their shoes. And if you do that for, what, like 40, 50 hours a week repeatedly, like that can become real. So that's, yes. that's an interesting perspective on it.
2: Yes, yes, very true.
1: So then how do
0: you, as therapists, kind of manage that on your own then? If it's like, oh, man, this is really getting to me. What are you know the next steps or maybe personal signs? Or do you guys have your own kind of group like – I need to go talk to my person. Oh, yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, number one, I would would always recommend. Most therapists I know that are really solid have a therapist themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, it may not be that they see them every single week, but it may be that, oh, I've had a number of really hard cases with my clients, so I need to go touch base and make sure that I'm doing okay emotionally. Or it may be even something that they're very committed to their exercise to get those endorphins going and Mm -hmm. release that way. Or they're just – very intentional about getting a massage or a mani-pedi it doesn't even matter it could be different for each person they definitely need to have that in place and it's um like i said it's harder it's harder than you'd think because i think we all have we're we're driven and we want to go and we want to do and sometimes that self-care can seem a bit indulgent but it's not we all know it's not it doesn't matter what field you're in but but it still can feel that way
0: okay Mm -hmm. that makes sense though like, we talk to you, like, someone's got to take care of everyone else. It's like, you know, I work with chiropractors, so someone's, yeah. they have to adjust each other. Like, we all got yeah. to hook each other oh, up and yeah. take care. So it's, it's where like your body is the most important in the room, even though you're listening to someone who's telling their life story. Like, if you are not right, they will not get better.
2: That's exactly it. Exactly.
0: Yeah. That's, so yeah, that's tough. That's mm-hmm. tough. Thank you for what you do. <clears throat> that's tough.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: Yeah. Um, so when you were working with the kids, um, what kind of things was it more environmental with them? Did they kind of realize what was happening? Uh, what does that child development look like? How much uh, really impacts a young brain and then can be dormant until 20, 30 years later? Like, mm. What does that kind of look like?
2: Yeah. So a typical kid I was working with would be the mother was addicted to a drug Mm. of some sort. Um, Father was not in the picture. If he was ever around, it was sporadic. He might have been in jail. He might have been selling drugs on the street or like I said, sporadic. Uh, Many times my kids had brothers and sisters with different dads. So very – very, uh, fractured family compared to my little mom and dad and two older brothers. And so it was, uh, it was interesting and it was something that I really wanted to do. And I don't know why I can't answer the question why I was, I was raised in Cincinnati, Ohio in a nice little neighborhood and why I was very drawn to a context that didn't look anything like my world, but I was, and I loved it. And I still have a huge heart for urban conditions and the urban scene. And so those kids in particular, I mean, I would read their case files and be like sobbing. (laughs) I mean, it was Mm. just, you can't imagine. Um, The level of trauma, we throw around the word trauma a lot now, but the level of trauma that these kids would have experienced by the time they were four, five, six, I've never experienced anything in my entire 40 years. And, And yeah, it's stuff that you can't even fathom because what happens is obviously when you have generations of, so let's start with poverty, generations of disenfranchisement because of being a minority group, generations of families that haven't seen the, the, the possibility or the power, haven't experienced the intact family. So those aren't norms in that environment. So the kids, it's, it's, it's amazing. What they consider norm is so different for us. I'll, I'll give you an example. This one little boy, like three years old, literally, that I saw. And he would. we did a lot of play therapy in that with little kids, right? Okay. So you kind of watch how they play because what they're playing is their world and they're demonstrating it to you. Mm. And they don't realize they are, which is great because you don't really – they're not going to be able to tell you, yeah, well, yesterday my, my mom's boyfriend came home and I was nervous and scared because I was afraid he was going to hurt me because he has in the past. They're not going to have that conversation with you. Mm-hmm. But if you have them play – they will oftentimes through the play demonstrate that, whether it's through puppets or just play acting. This little boy was so tough. He was like I said, three, four, five. And he would strut around the room, the my office, and I was so struck by, gosh, he's so hard. He's so tough. And it bothered me. I thought, why is he trying to be so like a little man? He doesn't have to be a little mm-hmm. man. He can be the little boy
3: mm-hmm.
2: until I started understanding, no. He does to his mind. He's the man of the house. He's the oldest man in that house. He feels something that my older brothers at age five did not feel because <laughs> I had a dad mm-hmm. around. He feels he has to protect his mom. He feels he has to protect his long- younger sis- sisters and brothers. He feels things that I, and, and he's probably seen things that have terrified him. So even at five, he is trying to posture and look tough in ways that I'd never seen seen a little boy have to act. It's just, it's, it's so painful. It's so painful to watch and you feel very helpless, especially when you're 24 and you had some expectations that you were going to make the, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize what people are doing because, and I'm sure I was in that context, a healthy adult who's there every Wednesday at 12 noon when you have your therapy session, who's consistent and reliable is a big deal Mm -hmm. because their mother's trying to get off drugs, as you guys know, is very, very difficult and oftentimes the mom would say yeah i'm going to come for our visit and the mom wouldn't come mm-hmm. because she needs to be clean and maybe she had a dirty drop and so she wasn't able to come and the kid doesn't understand that and the kid doesn't understand why does mom want to do those drugs instead of be my mom mm-hmm. that's that's what the kid's feeling the kid doesn't understand well addiction is really serious and she really would like to kick it and and be your mom again that's not going through a little child's mind so imagine all of that all these emotions and these thoughts and Trying to make sense of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, every minute of their day was trauma. I don't, the the older I get, the more uh, the more I'm astounded at how when you think about some kids who come from that environment and they are resilient, and we hear their stories and they're motivational speakers, and thank God they are because we need to hear their stories and we need to have their motivation. It's a really amazing that anyone can come out of that as a child and and be okay. Truly.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's something that they can't, they can't impact either from the beginning. Like they're born into it. It's something that they, that they can't control. And they're trying to figure out themselves, like, how can I change this? And I'm, I'm sure like, what do you think separates the people that are able to kind of overcome it and get out of it? And the ones that aren't, cause like, I mean, they can't do it all themselves, but at the same time they may have to. So what do you, I mean, what do you think separates those kids that actually do make it out of there?
2: So I'm not well-versed in the resiliency literature, but there Mm -hmm. is a lot of research on that because everyone is very curious about that question. Obviously, certainly people who work in those environments as therapists and certainly professors and psychologists who research those populations are very curious. How can we, if we know what allows someone to become resilient, how can we integrate that into these kids' lives to give them the chance to be as resilient as possible? Mm -hmm. And it may be some it could be a nature nurture thing there could be some some kids who are a little bit somehow genetically able to let some of that not infiltrate their psyche to the degree that it becomes so such a barrier i, I yeah like i said i don't i don't know the research on that but mm-hmm. and i don't know that we know fully but there are researchers trying to put together a picture of resiliency and how we can as community groups and other agencies cuz we we can't go and fix the family to the degree that we want to fix the family.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then some people would say they might even feel offended by that. know, what's wrong with my family? Just because it doesn't look like your family doesn't mean it's not okay. No, that's that's true. But at the same time, when kids are being hurt, that's where we all as a culture need to come together and say, yeah, family styles may different differ, but when kids are being abused and neglected, and harmed, that's when we all have to come in. And, and that's what the state tries to do. Mm-hmm. It's very imperfect, obviously. The, the interventions are very imperfect at this point.
0: So when you're working with, with a kid in just these traumatic environments, what are some methods, excuse me, methods that you're able to, because they're young, right? Yeah. You know, when I have young patients at work, it's hard to get them to do their stuff at home. Yeah. So even <laughs> just simple corrective exercise, right? But it is what it is. Uh, They want to play, be a kid. Uh, So how would you kind of tap into that? like, So they understand they need to start doing something different. And what were those differences? Like, hey, this is how we're going to manage this. So when you saw the kid playing, when you understood what was happening, uh, what were kind of the messages? Or I don't know if they have like take-home exercises, mental exercises or anything like that. Uh, but how would you kind of tap into that and help them understand a little better, like, okay, the, we need to go a different direction with this?
2: Yeah, and when they're real little, three, four, five, that's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they get older into eight, nine, 10, we did a lot of uh, anger management type stuff, trying to help them understand that their anger was valid and legitimate. And of course, anyone would feel angry, but let's not let that anger fester such that I'm going to punch some kid in the face on the playground. So trying to help them, even things that seem pretty simple, but for a kid who hasn't been taught some of these emotional regulation skills in their home, because again, it's pretty chaotic in the home, They things like, okay, if someone says something to you and you feel like you were being disrespected, let's take 10 seconds, deep breaths before we act and things like that that Many of us kind of just picked up, assimilated from just watching our parents with their emotional regulation or watching some of that is if it's if you're in a healthy enough context, you kind of learn that naturally so some of those types of skills I would teach also with my uh, with my high schoolers, it was very much future orientation. The high schoolers are old enough when they're when they're five they don't know what they're in they don't they think everyone 's life is like theirs they don 't realize no it's not normal that mom is addicted and, and that you had to go and live with grandma. And because there's a lot of that in their community. So they see that and they don't know that it's not normal, but when they get into high school, they start realizing, wait, I, I, this, this isn't probably ideal. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know fully how they wrap their mind around it. Cause the other thing guys, it's really hard. To, and it was very hard for, it's hard when you're, you're in a situation when you want to advocate for a kid. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. they tell you, and I did too, they tell you when you start working with these kids, you're going to want to go buy a farm in central Illinois and take 40 of them down and <laughs> just adopt them all. So just know that. <laughs> this is like, it's going to pull on every maternal instinct you've ever had. It's going to pull on every kind of savior complex you might have. And therapists have a little bit of that anyway because they get yeah. into that field. But they, you, they tell you you have to be really careful because here's the thing. You may be so furious with that mother for not getting her act together and kicking those drugs so she can get her babies back. You may be so furious with that father for never being part of that kid's life. But you cannot tell the kid, you cannot let the kid know how furious you are because those are his parents. And those are the only mom and only dad he's ever going to have. And he knows that he's from them. So if you start ripping on the mom, your mom did you wrong again. She didn't come for your visit. She's no good. She's so, she's so. Cruel to you. If you say that to the kid, the kid internalizes, yeah, mom's no good. She's a screw up, and so am I.
3: Because
2: I come from her. I'm her kid. I'm probably going to be the same way. So you have to be very careful in terms of how you help them sort out. Now, you can empathize when they're feeling pain. You have to be very careful you don't put on top of that this shaming of their parents. You can't do that, even though that's what your heart wants to do because you're mad. You're like, This kid's a great kid and you're making it really hard for this kid to grow up. I mean, yeah. you really feel very protective. <laughs> and so you have to be really careful with that. So that when I with the high school kids, I loved having groups because that was great for them to kind of support each other. They might be able to hear it from another kid who also has a mom who's letting them down and still addicted to drugs. They might be able to hear that better than me coming in from my world. And so if they support one another and then they share strategies together. And then for high schoolers, there's a lot of future orientation. Because when you're on the streets as a child and living in poverty, you're very much in survival mode. These kids typically don't have much of a future orientation. The way like when I was in eighth grade, people were like, so once you get to high school and then you get your grade, good grades, then you're going to go to college. What college do you want to go to, Karen? And that, that's not the conversations that maybe are happening for these kids on a regular basis. So you help them see Here's what you could do. I mean, I had kids in the south side of Chicago, you guys. They would look north and they would see the Sears Tower and they would tell me, I've never been downtown. It's They're on 30th in Michigan. They've never been downtown. It's 30 blocks. That's it. You could walk it in an hour. Maybe not. Maybe 40 minutes. I mean, never. So as far as their worlds, oftentimes they were very, very small worlds with very um, – very, uh, the idea that you can go be whoever you want to be and make whatever you want in your life. Those aren't messages, messages they were often hearing. Mm.
1: And I was going to ask you, so like throughout their de- development, I want to hit on like the depression aspect. Like when, when do you think that usually sets in? Cause I feel like depression for a lot of people comes from like comparison. Like I feel like they can, com- they compare themselves to their parents. Like I'm going to become that when they get out and see like other people's situations who do have it good, they compare themselves to that. And I feel like I was going to ask you, like, how do you see that develop within kids? When does it usually develop? And I guess what are some things that you can do to kind of instill that and combat that feeling that they're feeling?
2: Well, you, you might be surprised. I didn't see a lot of my kids weren't depressed. Okay. Again, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And, They're acting out. Now we might go, I think they were acting out because of emotions that they don't know how to process and they may be depressed emotions, but they don't know how to manage those. So they're acting Mm -hmm. out. Um, Kids, I mean, my girls group more, it wasn't so much depression. They were, uh, I mean, our goals were, like I said, future, my high school girls. And I mean, really, and we talked about it. Our goals are let's graduate high school and not get pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, so we're like, the depression thing was not something I saw. Now, again, it was probably present at some, but it's not that it's presenting problem typically with this, the group, the group of kids that I saw. In general with kids, you know, kids are pretty, in general, when you see a kid clinically depressed, like eight, nine, 10 years old, that's pretty profound. Mm -hmm. Kids tend to, because of their cognitive development, they're not at the place even when we talk about that, not until they get into high school, do they really have the ability to even hypothesize in the ways that we do. They're pretty concrete and, be, and that's actually pretty protective when they're concrete. It, there's less chance of them getting depressed early on. So when you see that, that's a, usually a, a pretty rough case. And um, again, there's a lot of research for kids and depression, but, and, that, and there are of course, clinical strategies, but I'm a fan of family therapy because I firmly believe that kids are not able to make a whole lot of changes themselves. As we know, they're not running the show in the family, whether you're talking about the kids I worked with in the South side, or you're talking about kids who grew up in my neighborhood with me in Cincinnati. I mean, so kids can't control a whole lot. The the best approach for children is to get the family, the entire family, every last member of the family in there and see what's happening in the home because kids were, a kid's depression may often be a reflection of the marriage. Mm. They don't realize it, of course, but they're acting out because the marriage is is stressed out. And even if the parents don't even let on, kids pick up on stuff. And then they may absorb some of the emotional discord going on in the marriage and then act it out through their emotional state.
0: I've, I don't know if I heard or read about it, that when, especially in like infancy, parents need to be, extremely careful with their emotions because that child will feel Mm -hmm. especially when they're holding the baby like it will feel if you're angry and then that's what it gets to know so it's interesting you say that um where it comes out when Mm -hmm. you see what's going on with the parents Mm -hmm. but then did you do quite a bit of of family therapy
2: i wish i could have In these cases, because the kids were pulled from their family of origin, they were now living with usually an aunt or a grandmother. It was a kinship program, and that has its pros and cons as well. Uh, So I didn't do a lot, and a lot of it isn't done that much anymore, and I'm not really sure why, but it used to – like in the 70s, it was really a hot thing. And I'm such a fan. I would love – and you can do family therapy even – People your age could go to family therapy and pull your family in from wherever the heck they're living, and it could be powerful and beneficial. Because we're acting, we're acting out our family stories and, and the, the the generational dysfunction. It just unless we address it, it keeps playing out. Now dysfunction is relative. We're all dysfunctional to some degree, right? <laughs> so, but it's pretty cool. But the family therapy, it's it's really really powerful. I can give you an example of what something might look like. So you'd have maybe um, a mom and a dad who don't have a very strong marriage and the kid's about to launch and go to college, let's say. And because the, the – let's say it's the last kid. They're going to be empty nesters. And guess what? Now the mom and dad have to look back at each other. Remember, they're not only mom and dad. They're also a husband and wife. Mm-hmm. And maybe they've neglected the husband and wife role because they've had all these kids to raise. So what can happen is if the child – and again, this would not be something that the 18-year-old could even – realize. But if that kid recognized at some level that mom and dad, that marriage was vulnerable and that if they went to college, it might really just implode the marriage. The kid could start showing signs of depression such that, oh my gosh, I'm so depressed. I'm clinically depressed now. And let's take them to the psychologist and da da Oh, I guess you can't go to college. Well, what does that do? Save the marriage. So a lot of times with children and with young people, what we see as their clinical picture may not even really be what's going on underneath it all could be family dynamics that are playing, playing out. That's amazing. Yeah. It's really fascinating stuff. If anyone's interested, the best book on this and it's a true story, but it reads like a novel because of the way it's written. It's called the family crucible. If anyone's interested, it, it's fascinating. I mean, to the point where the young girl was about, I think she was in her 20s, and she was getting diagnosed with schizophrenia, which is psychotic, right? So that's one of the worst right. diagnoses you can get. You have now, you're hearing voices that are not, no one else is hearing. You're believing things that no one else believes to be true about you. So delusions and hallucinations are the, the hallmarks of schizophrenia. And this girl was exhibiting this type of stuff. And when the family therapist got in there, it was all about the parents' marriage, the, the husband and wife, yeah. And going back several generations, they were carrying stuff from their generations. It's fascinating. It'll make you question, huh, I feel this today. Well, really? Why? Yeah. <laughs> it may not be whatever you attribute it to.
0: Calling mom and dad. What did you guys do <laughs> 10 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> the hell's going on here?
2: Yeah. And tell them, hey, forget about mom and dad. Be husband and wife because that'll help me, actually. If you guys tend to your marriage. Yeah, right. It, truly. Yeah.
0: Man, talk about really getting the thing behind the thing. Behind yeah. the thing. Behind the Um, thing, yes. It's interesting that you talk about the parents getting back to husband and wife. I read this book. um, It's either How to Get the Love You Want or When God Writes Your Love Story. And it talked about you need to date all the time, even when you're married.
2: Yeah. You always need to keep
0: dating. Go on dates. Go to the movies. You know, do those fun nights out. Um, So it sounds like those people, they lose all sense of that.
2: They do. They do. And many people do. Many people do.
0: Losing the courting aspect of it. Like you should still court yeah. and do those things. So yeah,
2: talk about hashtags. Someone has a date your spouse hashtag, which I love.
0: Really? Mm. Yeah.
2: Date your spouse. I love that. I wish I'd come up with it, but I didn't. But I like it.
0: <laughs> maybe maybe we'll scope through that hashtag later. Yeah.
2: yeah. You might find that, yeah, great guest for your
0: podcast. Yeah. Yeah, no I'm kidding. Man, that's wild. Just it goes so deep. And it's mm-hmm. like we don't think we think no. we're so surface and it's just it's it's way underneath.
2: Oftentimes, most of the time, really, it is. And it's okay. We'll, we can make it. You know, we don't always have to go that deep to be high-functioning and be happy and doing all sure. right. But if we aren't, my – and, again, some of the, the experts I've had on the program, on my podcast, it's really – that's what, another reason why I'm frustrated with our knee-jerk reaction to medicate right now for emotional states because all we're doing is putting a Band-Aid uh, over a tumor. Mm-hmm. and we are not going to cure anything or become healthy unless we examine a bit and figure out what's underneath all that. Instead of just going, Oh, feel better, which actually a lot of those drugs don't work anyway. They're (laughs) oftentimes placebo (laughs) truly. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, So Karen, I have to ask, and you can share as little or as much as you want. Did you end up through, through your entire journey here, find some things we had to peel back a layer and another layer and it's like, well, this was connected to all the way back. x y and z um so is there anything that you've experienced where you unpacked a lot more and it it wasn't necessarily from you but something you picked up on
2: yeah that's a great question and i've been in therapy as like i said most therapists um i think my dog's trying to get in hold on one second
0: oh no you're good
2: we talked about this earlier
0: yeah it's all good go dogs
2: (laughs) Lally. (laughs) Go dogs. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know, that's a great question. But I I would say when I've been to therapy, it was mostly for typical girl got broken up with stuff. (laughs) So I don't know that I've gone super deep as far as uncovering something that happened to my grandma that maybe trickled down to me. But I think that's a really good question. And uh, one, I definitely think. Um, I think one of the things that, when you go through all those kinds of broken-hearted stuff, and I don't know what you, your guys' story is, but you know, Heartbreak <laughs> <laughs> heartbreak tends to be an equal opportunity uh, situation. But it's definitely a great place. Therapy can really help you kind of sort through that and give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling, because a lot of times I would. I would, when I was single, I would feel almost guilty because when I wouldn't be with someone and I'd be like, gosh, I want a boyfriend. And then I'm like, I'm supposed to be a strong, independent woman. I shouldn't want to need that, you know? So giving <laughs> myself permission to, you know, it's a natural desire to want your person. And so that kind of thing. So therapy really helped me kind of give myself a break because I was kind of hard on myself <laughs> a lot. And then if I got broken up with, I'd want to be tough like i'm okay and i really wasn't <laughs> so, so this, that was very helpful for me and then of course writing my book I was probably partly therapeutic as well and so that was mm-hmm. um, yeah kind of a way of sharing what had helped me cuz i didn't get married until i was 42 so all those years of being single and dating you know i started dating at 15 and then at 42 i get married that's 27 years on the dating scene which seemed to be a decent number, <laughs> more than I'd ever anticipated. <laughs> but,
1: but everyone has their own timeline. There's no timeline. Yes, line.
2: that's yeah. so true. That is so true. But, um, yeah, so that was something that was really helpful for me, like I said, therapy. That, um, but it, getting back to the generational stuff, my mom got married at 21. She graduated college, mm-hmm. and the next month she was married. So it was one of those things where I didn't necessarily have that, well, what do I do at 32 single? I didn't have that role model. So that was helpful. Therapy helped me to kind of just like, okay, got to sort out and own your own path and own your own. And like you said, everyone has their own timeline.
0: Mm -hmm. So how did you kind of navigate that? And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening. I'm like, okay, I've been single for so long and I'm trying to find like, Mr. or Mrs. Right, you know I thought I had one and it didn't work out. I was crushed. I thought I had another one and yeah. it's just twice as bad. It's like, well, now what's the point? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and to where some people, it's like, all right, well, I'll let it come to me, and you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. How did you kind of manage that? Of like, all right, this is okay. Like, this is okay to be in this spot. It's where I'm supposed to be right now.
2: Yeah, that was um, that took a long time, and uh, another little tidbit of this story is at 34, I was in, well, I got engaged at 33 and was supposed to get married at 34 to a guy I'd met when I was four, uh, 40, no 30. So we were together three years, got engaged and then we're engaged for a year. And then two months before the wedding, I called it off. So the runaway bride story. Yeah.
3: Hmm.
2: And that was really, that was really the clarifying moment for me because I'd had Couple heartbreaks in college and post college on again, off again with someone who I thought was the love of my life, and so that didn't work out. And now I'm in my late 20s, and I had that kind of just this dry spell of nothing, and no one was. It just seemed like I couldn't. I was active. I was doing things. You know, People are like, you got to get out there. I'm like, I'm out here. I don't know where I'm supposed <laughs> to be. I'm going to work. I'm going to church. I'm, I'm in like a soccer league. I'm doing stuff. Like, but you know, sometimes it's just the timing is everything. And so I just wasn't meeting anyone. And I felt really de- despondent about that, kind of started losing hope. And I was like 28, which looking back, I'm like, I was a baby. But... <laughs> But you feel what you feel. And when that timeline and your friends are getting engaged or you think, and I I don't know, I think men feel the pressure as well, but women certainly do. And Instagram, people showing off their ring, Here's me with my engagement ring. And so getting back to what you're talking about, the comparison of where we are in our life where someone else is, and that is absolutely related to depression and anxiety. And so I was feeling really low about that. And then when I met this guy on my 30th birthday, true story, I was out in Chicago dance club called polyesters it was all 70s and 80s it was awesome
0: because it was like yeah.
2: polyesters i don't know if they they used to have them in a bunch of cities they were down in houston and but what i loved about them is they were the, the antithesis of the typical Club with like everyone wearing black and thinking they're too cool, and the velvet rope, and VIP. It was nothing Mm. like that. It was just a bunch of idiots like me. Like, we're gonna (laughs) do, we're just gonna pretend we're like in eighth grade at our eighth grade dance. Yay! And all (laughs) 70s, yeah. So it it was a super goofy environment. So my girlfriends and I used to go dancing there because it was so fun. And so I met this guy, and he was super kind, super smart, super driven, super like on paper, exactly the guy that I should want. And on paper, we were a perfect fit. And so I kind of thought, okay, you know, I didn't have that spark right away, but I thought, you know, gosh, this is such a good guy. Give it a shot and give it a chance. And I kept trying. (laughs) And then four years later, two months before our wedding, I just felt, I can't do this. This is going to be disingenuous. I'm going to say vows that I don't mean, and I can't do this. And it was all because, like you were saying, I felt that pressure that I wasn't where I wanted to be, and I'd tried and had heartbroken so many times, so maybe I'll just go with the good enough guy who's a really good fit and will make a good enough life. And then I just knew I couldn't do it because I didn't want to be that person like we spoke to earlier. I think sometimes people have those problems in marriage. It's harder for them to date their spouse throughout their, their marriage if they ended up, for lack of a better word, settling for mm-hmm. a good enough, okay relationship instead of holding out for something really extraordinary and powerful and exceptional.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I didn't want to be, and I remember I had this this thought. I, I can remember it was Valentine's Day. We were supposed to get married in May <clears throat> and, it was, and it was Valentine's Day and we're <laughs> supposed to be madly in love. We're engaged and we're going to get married in a couple months and we're at this restaurant. I remember looking around the restaurant. On Valentine's Day, of course, there's just all these couples. I remember looking around like, wow, they look like they're really in love. And I remember thinking, oh, Karen, (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. not good. You don't want to spend the rest of your life thinking everyone else in the room is madly in love Mm -hmm. and you're not because that's no way to enter a marriage because marriage may have its own challenges, but let's not enter a marriage feeling already that other people have something special that you don't have. Mm -hmm. So some of those clarifying moments and then, like I said, a month later I called. I called it off. And it was very, very, very hard. And I felt like a failure and I felt like I ruined his life. <laughs> but um, I can tell you, it's always the right, you got to trust your gut and those kinds of things. And, yeah. and my husband is really happy. I didn't yeah. marry that guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I am really happy. I didn't as well. Yeah.
0: Uh, so I want to get back to that, but I, I do commend you for doing that because Thank my you. older brother, he uh, was in a prior relationship for four or five-ish years, something like that. And he had talked to me one night and he's like, man, I just I see my friends getting married and then having kids. And I just, we would have a lot of fun together, but I don't see that with yeah. her either. I was like, that's it, man. That's all you had to say out loud. And uh, so, yeah, I know it, it takes a, a lot to be able to do that. And it's still, it doesn't make it easy, even if you're not that other table super in love, you know, it doesn't have a lesser blow to it. Um yeah. So then when and how did you meet your current husband? So and we what was like the factor of like, oh, this is it. Like now yeah. we're talking. Like I know yeah. now. Because everyone wants to like, oh, yes. when you know, you know. But when you know, you know, air quotes. Like, So what is that actually, you know, from someone who's lived it, seen it, you know, on one end of the spectrum to the other, wh- where did you find that?
2: Yeah. It, it is very – so yeah, I've, I've been in an engagement – that was with the wrong person, and I know what that felt, feels like. And then I was an engagement in an engagement to the right person, and it felt night and day, night and day. And what I can say is, when you're with, because it, it, it is annoying, people are like you just know. What, let's ha- let's concretize that a little bit because people are out there really trying to find the one and if they are supposed to just know, that's a little nebulous. That's not really very clear. What I can tell you is it really goes back to your gut and your gut, and that also feels like, really? But I think people know when they make, I mean, every time I made a stupid decision with a relationship, I knew I was making a stupid decision. I mean, I knew I was phoning it in, in that first rela- in that first engagement Just hoping eventually the the feelings would follow, right? I'll just I'll fake it till I make it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think you know, but you don't listen to that inner voice, that gut, because you want something badly. Because I was 34 and it was time to get married, and my friends were married, and I'm the biological clock for women is a thing. So you know why you're doing it if you just are still enough to let yourself tell yourself what you're feeling. But a lot a lot of times we won't. And when I was when I was uh, in that engagement and not trying to listen to my truth and my inner voice, I mean, I was out partying a lot because that kept me from having to feel what I was feeling. Mm-hmm. Right? Let me just go and kick it with my girls, and hey, let's go, let's go get some drinks, come on, you know, because that was a real nice way for me to dissociate. So, what I can tell people about being with the one is that things that should have been a problem will not be a problem. So, for example, I talked about how my uh, first fiancé, we were perfect on paper. Well, my second fiancé, who I'm not married to, is, it wasn't perfect. He, has, he was recently divorced. So that would be, as a psychologist, like, oh, has he grieved that marriage? Has he processed it, right? Mm-hmm. So that would be the first thing that would not seem ideal. He had three kids. And I was like, whoa, I'm 40. Uh, he's amazing. His kids seem really great. But stepmom, wow, that's a, an entirely different domain that I hadn't anticipated. And that's, that's serious stuff. I mean, these kids didn't ask for this marriage to break down. And if you're going to enter their life and be a part of it, that you've got to be prepared for the fullness of that because that's a big responsibility. And you don't know what the, you're getting into because the kids have every reason to be very angry and maybe they're going to not welcome you with open arms, but you can't blame them right? They didn't ask for any of this. So that was another piece. He lived in Northwest Indiana. I lived in Chicago. I was very much a city girl. So geographically challenged. (laughs) (laughs) So things like that on paper weren't perfect. But when you're with the right person, you start realizing, but that's a challenge, but every relationship has challenges. And you recognize through being with them month after month, year after year, you go, well, that's, that's going to be something we will tackle together. Mm -hmm. Feel that trust that you can handle whatever those circumstances are because they really will be your partner. You won't be in it alone. And I will also say that they will surprise you in ways. So for example, and I'll share this because this is really the clarifying moment when I knew my husband was the one. So I'd like to share it because it's nice to have a concrete example because Mm -hmm. otherwise it still feels kind of out there. So. we Started dating in August, and then we were dating other people. Obviously, we were just like you do, you're dating around, you're dating people, and we we're seeing each other, but not exclusively. And then, about in November or maybe early December, probably early December, he asked me, Uh, what are you doing for New Year's? And I said, Oh, so kind of long story, I hadn't shared it with him yet. But, uh, my family would always we're a real musical, you guys know, I'm a musician, so we always would do a New Year's gig together. So, my two older brothers and then my father, and then I would sing, and then my dad played piano, my brother played drums, my other brother played bass guitar. So like a little family ensemble. And uh, we would do that. We'd done that for 20 years, that we would get together in New Year's. It was family tradition. So unfortunately, my father at that time had started suffering from vascular dementia, which is kind of like Alzheimer's. And he had gotten to the point where he, the year before was, we could tell that was going to be the last year he'd be able to play because he was sadly forgetting songs that he'd played since he was 10 years old. So horribly painful. I mean, just literally like, I mean, I couldn't talk about this for years without crying. So we're doing pretty well right now. So we'll see how I hold up. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I told Dan, I said, Oh, you know what? Thanks. You know, cause he had said, you know, what are you doing for New Year's? You know, I'd like to take you out. We would go downtown Chicago, live it up, do it up right. And I, I said, Oh, thank you so much. That sounds lovely. And then I explained what it, to him what I just explained to you. And I said, you know, I, this is the first year we're not doing that family tradition. And so I just want to be home with my parents because I don't want them to be alone for the first time in many, many, many years. And I thought, he would do which I wouldn't even have blamed him I thought he would say to me oh come on Karen stay up here we'll go out it'll be fantastic champagne dancing I thought he would do what I expected and some other guys probably that I dated would have done kind of trying to coerce me and coax me to do what he wanted to do Mm -hmm. no he looked at me and he said that is really touching and I would I just start to tear up a little bit because I'd not shared with him about my father's illness and he's like, that's really touching and that's really wonderful. So if you're in Cincinnati, do you think you, your parents would mind if I tagged along? And mm. so he drove five hours down to Cincinnati to spend New Year's Eve with me and my parents in their 70s. Mm. And awesome. I thought that was so loving and so different. And that made me feel safe mm. that he would honor what I honored. And what was meaningful and valuable to me, that he would see that and go, yeah, I get. And then love that about me, that, that I cared about my parents so much and wanted to make sure that they were not by themselves on New Year's. So it was just that beautiful, him just honoring that decision and then wanting to come along and be a part of it.
1: That's huge. That's amazing. And I'm sure that translated to so many other parts of your relationship too, because you I like what you said about being safe. Mm-hmm. Like, you, it, I mean, that I'm sure that made you feel a certain way. And I'm sure that set the tone for the rest of your guys' relationship, right?
2: It did. It was one big example of he does that for me in a million other
0: ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So is it was like, all right, we're exclusive now, boy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we actually did. We, we were exclusive. Uh, like January 5th is my birthday, and that's – he took me out for uh, – for uh, my birthday, so right after New Year's, obviously, and he said we gotta be exclusive, and I was like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> that's
0: awesome! Oh, that's awesome! Good for you guys. but yeah. well, thanks, thanks for sharing that. That's that's yeah. really good. That's how that kind of
2: yeah. Uh, I uh, hope that's helpful for any listeners out there who are looking for that kind of mm-hmm. sense and that safety thing. I want to say is uh, something I've heard from a, a psychotherapist called Ken Page. This is another book I want to, want to recommend for anyone. And I had him on my podcast recently. He wrote a book called Deeper Dating. Mm. And he talks about kind of how to go through this process of dating. that does feel so confusing sometimes. And People say, oh, you've got to love yourself first. Well, what does it mean to love yourself first? I mean, that, that can also seem a little bit out there. And he talks about that. You, you want to be with someone with whom your soul feels safe. And that was one of the best ways I'd ever heard it described. Like when, how will you know you'll know because your soul feels safe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Yeah. And that's a, like, that's a, anybody who's in a relationship, that's a good question that you should bring up with your partner, with your girlfriend, with your wife. Cause it's, I mean, that can set the tone for everything else. So it's a good question to bring up. For sure.
2: Yeah. And yeah. Anyone who was interested in that, check out that podcast episode or else um, also his book, deeper dating. It's, it's, Great! It's the best. I I don't usually like dating books because they usually tell you to be a different person, or they tell you do these five things, and the right person's going to show up the next day. That's just it's not that formulaic. Yeah. <laughs> but his his book is really a, a very it's a beautiful exercise in understanding yourself and honoring your core gifts. He calls them, and then making sure that you don't ever. Spend consider dating someone once you realize someone isn't a good fit for your core gifts and doesn't honor and cherish your core gifts and it's not a match it doesn't mean that they're a bad person it's just not a good fit for you
0: yeah yeah i think that i think a lot of people are gonna hear that and be like, all right that makes sense finally yeah. it makes yeah. sense yeah. um and i do want to get to the music but i do have to ask you said your husband's from northwest indiana where about valpo oh sherville
2: mm-hmm. what sherville it- yeah. Is that I'm where Sher- you
0: were? I'm a Sherville guy. Yeah.
2: So you were up in, at Mount Carmel though, you said. So you commuted. You, you commuted all the way. Okay.
0: So they'd have uh- a, a traditional yellow bus for all the Indiana guys who could not Ew. drive. Themselves. Yeah. And How so. How long did that take? With the stops, like an hour 15.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then I think.
0: once we were able to, you know, get you your license, you would carpool with guys. I was in a band. So some days I'd get there at seven. Um, and then you have sports. Yeah. So. Oh, my gosh. Then I'd be there till 6. You get home at 7. If you ride the bus, there's a late activity bus. And then you drive, you get home a little earlier, you split rides with people. But, yeah, I commuted every day. And then once you drove, it was like 40, 50 minutes, depending on the Bishop Ford, how jacked up it was. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) which is always jacked up. Yeah,
0: all the time.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we would take pictures of the traffic to prove, like, hey, we were stuck. Right. Not because we were late. Everyone else was trying to be on time. Right. (laughs) Right on, Val Fraser. Good yeah. deal. I remember going to Crusaders games with my pop, watching basketball oh,
2: yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yep, yep.
0: So you you sing. Um, what do you have uh, – is that all you did with, with the family uh, band? Did you play instruments along the way too or is singing uh, kind of your, your niche there?
2: Mostly singing. I play – I say I play chords. I don't really play piano, but I play okay. chords enough to write songs that I like. and And I can play – we we have family sing-alongs a lot (laughs) and uh just for fun so i can play enough chords to have fun with that but nothing fancy but yeah i enjoy it it's yeah it was always just part of my family obviously my father was a music professor and jazz piano player and church choir director my mom's a vocalist and like i said my brother's a musical so it was just Mm -hmm. always part of my family and singing choirs all the time but yeah the music the songwriting really came again from my uh my days in the dating scene. <laughs> you yeah, know, right. nothing like a broken heart to get a good song out of you.
0: <laughs> That's like Taylor Swift, man. Oh She's my getting gosh. broken left and right. Damn.
2: Right, for sure. And Adele just got uh, divorced, so we can expect a great record coming out of her. Uh, yeah. That's going to be yeah.
0: deep. <laughs> that's when she's her best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's
2: when she's her best. will be fun. rolling
0: in the deep on that one. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> ah. um, so how, how, what does your songwriting process look like? Uh, is that just a big escape for you? Do you sit down and have certain you know, uh, cup of tea? Or, or how do you kind of set up to, to write songs? Is it poetry turned the song? Or, or what's that look like?
2: Yeah, I love that question. And I went to a songwriting workshop uh, about a year ago with a band called Over the Rhine. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They're very kind of folky, very poetic. They're amazing. They've been around for 30 years, and they're mm-hmm. extraordinary. They're out of Cincinnati, actually.
0: Oh, that and makes sense, because I know OTR and Cincy. My brother lives yeah. in Cincy, yeah. Pleasant right.
2: Me. Right, but and and then when they thirty years ago when they picked that name, it was real. It's all it's cute now. It's all okay. like, the hipster bars and the hipster restaurants are. But right. the day it was really it was the rough part of town. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so but they we talked a lot about process there, and I don't have a, a typical process. Every song is different. I I've just three songs right now. I think that are decent enough. I mean, I have a lot, but I haven't recorded all of them. So that I have. I think well, I think just two on Spotify, and then I just was in the I was just in the studio with Toxic Taylor in Chicago, who has worked with Cardi B and mm. and, and I was like, oh my gosh, wow. I'm like living wow. large right here. <laughs> it, was amazing. it was amazing. If anyone wants to have a record produced, go see Toxic. He and yeah, hit me up for his, his digits because he's amazing. But um, but that process. So this this new song, I'll talk about this one. So for my birthday last year, Dan and I went to uh, the Waldorf in Chicago just to celebrate for the weekend. And, of course, he did the romantic thing with the champagne in the room. Mm. And uh, so I start pouring myself some champagne, and I just start singing. I'm like, bubbles for my birthday, bring me bubbles for my birthday. Bubbles for my birthday, it's the only way to celebrate. And he's like, wait a minute. (laughs) you may be onto something there
0: (laughs) we got a number one hit record (laughs) I got voice memos open let's go right
2: but it was one of those things where it just kind of came because I was feeling fun it was my birthday and I had bubbles and then he thought don't all women like bubbles on their birthday and I said yes indeed we do (laughs) so yeah so that's the one I just recorded with toxic and but yeah then I again the angry girl stuff sometimes it would be I just have this feeling and I got to get it out it's not that I had written a poem. I don't, I'm not the best lyricist. I, I think I need help with that, but the melodies just start coming. And uh, so I have one and one, I woke up. I remember I'll never forget. I had a horrible, after calling off my wedding, I had a horrible, like two year, two year relationship was great, but then horrible breakup. And so now I'm 36 and I'm broken up with again and just all the feels. And I just woke up one morning and I had this melody in my head about how I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to move on. I didn't want to have a new man. I just, I was happy with you, blah, 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 blah. But you made me. So it's real like, you made me this, you made me that. And that just, the song was just in my head. So I had the keyboard right there and I quick went down and yeah, I used my voice recorder and to make sure it doesn't escape. Cause sometimes those melodies, if you don't get them down, they right. might go away. Mm-hmm. Are you guys songwriters as well?
0: So I've played. I had ten years of guitar and piano lessons a piece before I went to school, and then I still I have my guitars down here with me. Keyboards next because I miss playing the keys. Uh, But I I say keyboards where I learned my classicals, and then guitars where I learned my classic rock, and then I picked up everything outside and in between. Um, So all I have a book of like half you know finished half baked songs. Yes, same. Ten times more many pages with chord progressions yeah you know? like oh this sounds sweet i don't know what to say but this sounds sweet right um, exactly. but uh tim and i are a big writers so I'll, I'll write you know i have a separate book for like poems or um this might sound weird but it's from one of the books i read writing a letter to your future wife like so more like intimate things for that book and then a daily like gratitude journal where i write about my day and mm-hmm. writing uh i know tim can relate it's it's very unfiltered like mm-hmm. that's more unfiltered sometimes than speaking for me. Towards like I'll say exactly how it is. Like Look I mean, that book. Oh yeah, yeah. This
1: my my little book right here. That's what I write all my thoughts on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's good, you know. Either start or end, end the day with gratitude. Mm-hmm. It's Like you you can't do it if you're not feeling grateful. So it's like you have to yep. think. All right, what am I grateful for today? You know, some days you're just grateful for your bed. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Or or like. Your, your vehicle with, with heat or, you know, yeah. like, man, I really like driving my truck. It's pretty fun. You know, it's a good time. Uh, god's are usually at the top of that list. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, but uh, you know, so we, we ride a lot, uh, Tim does freelance writing too and things. So that's a big premise of, of ours too, is we write a lot all the time.
2: Yeah. And are you hoping to take some of that into songs or into a book or meditations or kind of, like, uh, I think Are you putting that out there in any way or no, Yeah,
0: I think I think you're interested in eventually writing a book. Right? book yeah, yeah. And I
1: do use it with my meditation as well.
2: Yeah.
0: So I, cool. I would love to do a book at some point. If something turns into a song, awesome. I think I need to spend a little more music time to myself. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of right now that's more back burner. And it mm. should be a front runner because it's mm. you can't think of anything else when you're doing that. You got to, you know, channel in. That's why I like yoga too. I can't think mm-hmm. of anything else. I'll fall over.
2: Yeah. No kidding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but bru- breathing. Am I moving where I want to move? Am I feeling what I want to feel? Oh, oh, this really sucked today. Oh, I'm going to fall over.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's so like true.
0: one of those, but uh, yeah, I, I think we both have big uh, writing aspirations, mm-hmm. but song, I've thought about it. I used to think about it a lot more when I was younger, but mm-hmm. you never know where it might take. You just, we'll play around campfire at friend's house sometimes. And it's just, you sing whatever from, R. Kelly Ignition remix to country music, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, and you might, you know, should you fall in love, you know, that's always another <laughs> vehicle. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. My other song that I have on Spotify is my love song. Well, I have several for my husband, but the one, it's one of my favorites. And it was, that process was just, it was our second anniversary. And you know how it is when, I mean, we're all so blessed to talk about gratitude. I mean, and I'm a big fan of gratitude. That literally that practice is essential. Everything starts there. Absolutely. And I, it was our second anniversary. And I remember thinking, I, you know, I want, I want to go get him a shirt. Okay. Really? <laughs> <So> <laughs> I was like, I'm going to write him a song right. and I'd written him songs before. I'd written him songs before, but I thought, you know, and, and the, this one, and I don't know what you think about, you know, when you get a chord progression, I'm always trying to, there's a tension between trying to make a song come out naturally and effortlessly and organically and then also wanting it to be something interesting and different right you don't want to have the mm-hmm. same chord progression i know chord progressions i mean you can't copyright them because they're all over the place and many of our favorite songs have very similar chord progressions if not the exact same chord progression right, right. i'm always trying to do something a little different well this time i decided you know what i'm going to do exactly what i want i don't care if it's trite i don't care if it's a chord progression that everyone else in the world has done i'm just going to write a song that's coming from my heart and it's called breathing And another thing for anyone who's looking for that confirmation that you're with the right person. So Dan would say, I overheard him say several times when we were dating, he'd say, you know, being with Karen is just so easy. It's just like breathing. And I Mm -hmm. thought, oh, that's a line for a song. So the song's called Breathing and it's all about that, that when you're with the right person, it really is much easier than you would ever think because those other relationships were hard because they weren't right. But I did. I just like let it pour out and it's... Funny enough i was I thought it's going to be trite because it's just going to be formulaic with the chord progression, but it's not i mean it's not anything esoteric you know crazy fusion jazz it's it's still a pop song, but that process of just letting myself be real free and not critical of myself in the moment a, a good song came out of it so that's my other thought about the process
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: for sure um that's cool because you know we we've uh, like many people have heard a lot of, you know, influencers, messages and things like that. But Gary Vee always talks about, you know, stop perfecting it.
3: Mm-hmm. It's just
0: another insecurity. Like it, it will never be perfect. Just start pushing it out and it'll get better each time. It'll never be a perfect thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I like that. It's,
0: cool that. it's like you thought, ah, forget what everyone else might want to hear or expect. I'll do right. what I think I like and it's for my husband anyway, so everyone else can buzz off. We'll <laughs> right. Let it rip on Spotify. <laughs> right <laughs> that's cool yeah that's awesome yeah
1: and there's no wrong way to express yourself either because that's another thing what like reason why i love writing and it's good to talk to people and feel understood from other people but no one knows you better than yourself so it's it's good mm-hmm. to kind of have that inf- affirmation and get your words put out there so that you can better under- understand them so yeah i like yeah,
0: Rest yourself. That's money. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I like that.
2: And therapists suggested a lot as a tool because when you, you're in your head a lot, which most of us are, we're pretty cerebral. Mm-hmm. Sometimes getting that thought in black and white and looking at it can help you distance yourself from it. Maybe it's a thought that's critical of yourself. You can look at it and be like, really? You know, come on. I wouldn't say that to my best friend. Why am I saying that in my head to myself? You know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. It can be very powerful.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I want to kind of transition into the book unless tim did you have any other music things uh and how that started you know was that where you started writing kind of like we journal we write we blog and then it's like eh, i think i could make a book out of all this or was that always a you know i'm gonna do a book at some point and then what did that kind of process and writing style look like
2: so it started actually after i called off my wedding i thought I, there's no book for this I was at the self-help section like many people, and as a psychologist, I was hoping that there might be some sort of how to get over calling off your wedding. What do you do next? Or even before I was at the self-help section going, is there a book to kind of help me figure out if I'm in this engagement for the right reasons? Because I was trying to sort through all my emotions and my thought processes, and there really wasn't a book. So I decided to write one. And that, so I wrote a book about calling off my wedding. That was actually the first book I wrote, but then I had an agent and I had a meeting with McGraw Hill and running press and no one picked up the book. They didn't buy it. And they said things like probably a really important book, but no bride is going to actually read a book about whether or not she should be engaged because she's having way too much fun planning her wedding. Mm. And as you guys know, some of these weddings are like three ring circuses nowadays and pot. Potentially, sometimes women are getting caught up in the wedding and not really thinking about the marriage after the wedding, mm-hmm. anyway, so I shelved that book for a while, and I thought, you know what? I have other things to say, and it really came from a conversation I was having with my parents because i now I was maybe thirty seven and of course, people ask you a lot, well, what's going on, you know, and, and my mother would hear things like, well, maybe Karen's too picky, and I would hear that, and or she has a doctorate, maybe she intimidates men, and I would hear that, or you know, she needs to get out there, like I said earlier, and I felt like I was sufficiently out there, yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: and so I thought, you know, if I'm hearing this stuff, I bet there's other 37-year-old women who are hearing this stuff, and there's really no, and again, like I said, the dating books that I saw in the self-help section were very much, uh, here's the five-step plan to meet Mr. Right. And if you do these five things, he's going to show up on a white horse next week and you're welcome. And I thought that was also a lot of baloney because everyone's journey to love is different. And if you're going to give someone a five-step process, maybe that worked for you. That's great. But also, sometimes it was saying things like, well, you got to flirt more and you got to put on some more makeup and just stuff that just seems so really, no. So my book took a very opposite vantage point. I'm, my book is all about, you're fine. There's nothing you, you need to change fundamentally at your core. You are the person you're supposed to be. And as a matter of fact, when you're single for a long time, it just shows you're pretty strong, that you aren't going to fall prey to, well, everyone else's doing it. So I guess I got to get married or everyone else after four years, I guess it's time to get married. It's it's the next step. You're pretty strong not to settle. So my book is completely opposite. And I did, there was nothing like that on the landscape, in the landscape of, of the dating literature at the time. And so it's, it's, it's completely a not how to book. It's all about how to remain happy and hopeful and positive and things like, don't get back with your ex just because you're lonely. Mm. Or don't wait to go on that trip to Paris just because you all thought that would be your honeymoon. If you're 32 and you want to go to Paris, get some girlfriends and go. You know, kind of live your life. Embrace it. Be, be full of life now. Don't put yourself... I call... I, I encourage my readers not to be ladies in waiting. Waiting mm. until when I get this, when I, when I get the boyfriend, when I get the husband, when I have the kids... So that kind of thing. So it's a very different uh, angle and a word of encouragement and empowerment. And it came from my own experience The things that helped me stay happy and hopeful and positive though. I was kind of going, when's this going to happen for me? <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, and that that's cool. You say that because it's, if you just keep waiting, no one's going to be attracted to someone who's not doing anything. right? And it's like, you need to go do stuff and be interesting and lively. And it's like, you know, That's attractive. You know, you hear people, oh, well, the character just got me like, oh, yeah. But like, no, they're exciting. They're fun, confident people. Right. That's it.
2: Yeah. And you want to, yeah, you want to thrive in life and not put your life on hold. And it also then, the the book's a lot about just making yourself happy because a lot of people think, oh, when I get that relationship, then I'll be happy. Well, Mm -hmm. that's a lot of, that's a lot of, that's a lot to put on a person. Hi, you're supposed to make me happy. You got it? Good. I mean, and that's a recipe. It's a horrible recipe for a horrible marriage, also, by the way. And so, it's really reminding women. And but I've had men read it too, and they also say that they hear the same kind of things. If you if you are married, by the time your grandmother thinks you should be married, you're probably going to be hearing some stuff from her when you go home for Christmas solo as well. So guys, get it too. But obviously, I wrote it because a more women are likely to read relationship self-help books. And then B, I was writing from my own experience. But um, yeah, I mean, when you're when you're thriving and living a full life and not expecting anyone else to make your life anything other, it's your job to make you happy and your job to create your own life. And I'll give you a great example of this, exactly what you talked about. So I started skiing in college and I went uh, with some friends. So I started a little bit late, but I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. And so then In grad school, when I lived in Chicago, uh, I would drive up whenever I could. I'd just try to find anyone who would want to ski with me up to Devil's Head or uh, Cascade Mountain because I couldn't even afford to go. I mean, I would drive up to Boyne sometimes in Michigan. Oh, Boyne's uh, good. Yeah, Boyne was. I mean, Boyne's really good. In Chicago, Mm -hmm. you can drive it, right? And I didn't have the kind of coin to be flying out to Colorado or anything. So, but I just kept doing it all the time. And a couple times, I kid you not. I drove up from Chicago to Devil's Head and skied the whole day by myself because I loved it so much. I just didn't want to have to wait on anyone else to ski. Mm -hmm. Well, when I met Dan, turns out one of his all-time favorite things to do is ski. So I'm Mm -hmm. so thankful that I didn't just put that on the side and be like, well, who goes skiing by themselves? A loser? No, actually someone who's just passionate about skiing and wants to live her life, whether she's Mm -hmm. got someone with her or not. And I'm so thankful I, I kept up because now we go on several ski trips every year and we adore it. It's one of our favorite things to do together.
0: That's cool. Yeah. I, and I, I like what you said about, oh, people want, oh, when I have this, it'll get better. It's like, well, when you have that, you're going to have a whole new set of problems.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's so exactly. it's
0: like make sure they're down for that too. Right. Um, but then I was, I was reading uh, one of your uh, articles on your website. We had the three hacks and you alluded mm-hmm. to boundaries with, with family uh, and then on one of the side, uh, notes was, you know, the, the study that you're not supposed to make someone else happy uh, to yeah. exactly your point where that's not their job and that's not your job. And if you're not happy, then what else, what other type of internal work do you have to do? Right. Uh, and, and I found that super fascinating. Cause like I've been there, we've all been there. It's like, yeah, oh, they, they'll make me happy. Like, or I'm happier with this person. Like, well, why aren't you happy without it? Right, and so that's a whole new list of unpacking things to do. So, uh, yeah, I like that article. that was, That was super fun to read, and it was a quick, easy read too. But yeah, it was like three of the biggest slaps in the face of like, oh, I know this, but it's like, I need to hear that again. You know? <laughs>
2: yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of things we do know, but we need those reminders.
0: Right, right. So I, I think those are great points for you know for us and for everyone listening. That you know, it's not their job, and that's not your job.
2: Yeah, it really, it, I mean, it's
0: the, the best, I mean, I tell people I'm not one to be able to give relationship advice, but it's the best compliment. It's not that you complete me, it's, it's the best compliment.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, I hate that you complete me business. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's pathetic. And, and you see it, and it's, it's a horrible, it's so unloving. It's so unloving to expect someone to complete you. Are you kidding me? Who, why would you put that on someone you claim to love? You're supposed to add to their life. Not be like give make me feel okay about myself. I have a void, fill it. I mean, mm.
0: I'm not thought it th- about it that way of putting that on someone of that that weight of like being the rest
1: of it. Right. So that's an interesting way to look at. I've not thought of it that
2: way. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: And we'll put the the title of your book in our show notes. But what's the name of your book that you wrote?
2: Single is the new black. Don't wear mm-hmm. white till it's right.
1: Nice. I do remember seeing that on
0: there. I was like, "That's really it's clever. got a nice word to it." It's got <laughs> That's a, really clever. Aero,
2: thank you. You guys are kind, and thanks for reading my article.
0: I appreciate oh yeah, of it. course, of course. Like I said, we're we're big writers, so it's like when someone else is writing some stuff, it's like, "Oh, what do they have to say?" You mm-hmm. know, yeah. we want people to read our thing. It's like, you know, we want to read people that we're interviewing too, but just what is what are other people putting out? You know, is it yeah. if it's a bad read, then it's like, well. I kind of get the vibe of that. I know that's not my, my thing. But if it's a good read, it's like, oh, that's what else we got. You know, so just yeah. one read will take you down, down the hole. So, yeah, we like to be interested in other people, like their message, their things.
3: Because
0: mm-hmm. uh, we had a post today. Everyone's got their thing. You know, don't, don't chase their thing because it worked out for them.
2: Right. Right. Exactly.
0: That's awesome. Tim, you got anything
2: else for uh,
0: Karen? I think I'm good. I think we, we've gone through a lot.
2: Yeah, we have. We've covered a lot of ground.
0: (laughs) Uh, Karen, anything for us at all?
2: Um, No, I just want to thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor. Like I said, when I saw what you guys were about, I'm like, they've got a lot going on. (laughs) You guys, you cover, yeah, talk about covering ground. You have a lot of content areas that you get into. So I thought, gosh, I mean, you're interviewing like business tycoons and all this. And then I thought they want to interview me. Wow.
0: <laughs> so tycoon. They- we should use tycoon more yeah. often. Yeah. Come we on, should, now. That's good power. Therapists and book writing tycoon. Right. Coon. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Isn't that a Monopoly word? Is that where I got that?
0: I don't know, but I remember playing Roller Coaster Tycoon on the yes. computer when I was little. Yes. Okay. Oh so I hear gosh. Tycoon. I, I think I'm building roller coasters. <laughs> yes. I love roller coasters. <laughs> yeah. I used to hate them. I went to Six Flags and rode Batman and did a corkscrew and upside down. I'm like, this is cool. <laughs> but uh, no, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, sorry, it was, it was late. You know, I finished with patience after we closed typically. So I appreciate your flexibility. Yeah, no, it's like all right. That. But yeah, this is super Super fun he even before we started he's like yeah when I found Karen I figured you know Slager's gonna have a good time on this one because <laughs> uh, we, we talk about empathy and, and things like that I get that from my mom and so it, it's fun to hear your level of depth too so yeah we really appreciate it uh, this is a lot of fun for sure yeah, and I think a lot-, lot of people are gonna benefit so we're gonna do a little extra hype on this one about
2: yeah well let them know I'm real busy on Instagram so Or if if there's anything, and if when you guys post about it, you know, make sure to tag me so I can engage with your audience and just, you know, if there's something that came up in the conversation that they want to hear more about or have a question about, that's where I'm most busy. Are you guys on everything or mostly on Instagram?
0: Uh, Instagram, uh, I need to work the Twitter a little harder, Mm -hmm, but we've been kind of strategizing and changing our Instagram. Mm -hmm. So Tim does a lot of social marketing uh, with his job as well. So that's nice. That helps us too. Right. Uh, but yeah. So when people are like, oh, it looks really pretty now. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's this guy. He, he kind of put the boot and ass on that one. So yeah. So we're, we're changing. Uh, we focus on the Instagram a little bit more cause that's just a lot of traffic, but yeah, we're yeah. on like SoundCloud and you know, all those, but yeah, Twitter I know is like people are sleeping on Twitter still. Yeah. So, like if someone on Instagram has like hundreds of thousands of followers, I'll look on Twitter, they might have like a couple thousand. It's True. Like, I can DM you on here because you don't <laughs> expect this. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Yes. yeah right. Strategy. <laughs> yeah. No. We're trying to finagle it. So,
2: yeah.
0: Um, yeah. This has been fun. Thank you so much again.
2: You're welcome.
0: And uh, yeah, I think eventually we'll have to do a part two for sure. I oh. think I'll also re- read the book. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I would love
2: do? to hear the real
0: talk. Yeah, I've read some relationship self help. So, it's oh, up, yeah. I have no shame. I'll do it.
2: <laughs> do it.
0: <laughs> All right, Karen, thank you so okay. much again. We appreciate you. This okay. is
2: fun. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Thanks so much.
0: Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye.